Hello and welcome to It's Lit, where all things literary live at the root. I'm Maisha Kai, Managing Editor of The Glow Up, and today I'm speaking with the esteemed Carol Anderson. Carol is the Charles Howard Candler Professor of African American Studies at Emory University. She's also the author of the New York Times bestseller, White Rage, The Unspoken Truth of Our Nation's Divide, which was a National Book Critics Circle Award winner, as well as Eyes Off the Prize, We Are Not Equal Yet, and One Person, No Vote. Carol's latest book is called The Second, Race and Guns in a Fatally Unequal America, and it's a deep examination of how the Second Amendment impacts Black Americans in vastly different ways than it impacts white Americans. You guys, I had such an incredible time speaking with Carol. For someone so deeply invested in the importance of correcting the historical record and getting us to rethink the laws and institutions that shape our lives, she is also incredibly warm and passionate and just a joy to talk to. So with that, please enjoy Carol Anderson. Carol, welcome to It's Lit. Uh, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to have you here. Um, I've, I've followed your work for a while and, you know, I'm not going to front. I'm a little bit intimidated because you're so brilliant. <laughs> We're going to do this, <laughs> you know, but, you know, uh, your bestseller, White Rage, was, was a, I think, a, a huge inflection point for a lot of people. And we're going to get into your newest book, The Second, Racing Guns in a Fatally Unequal America. But before we do, we have a little tradition here at It's Lit. This is a podcast about Black writers, Black thinkers, Black thoughts, Black books. And so we like to ask all of our guests as we start, yes. uh, if there was a book or books that for you was an inflection point, like what, like that really changed the way that you thought or that you were deeply inspired by, or maybe even made you want to write yourself? Um, yes, it was a book by John Dower and it was called War Without Mercy. And it asked the question, why was the kill rate so much higher in the war in the Pacific than it was in the war in Europe during World War II? And what Dower did was he looked at the role of racism and racial mm. stereotypes, both in the U.S. and in Japan to see the massive dehumanization that happened, the cross dehumanization that happened, that led to this massive, massive kill rate. The casualty rates were astronomical in the Pacific. And, and so it was that way of thinking about the way that race works in our society, in our policies, in the way that we govern, in the ways that we do war, that really just help me hone my lens as I'm looking at this broad expanse of America. Well, yeah, that's a, that's a great uh, segue into, <laughs> into this book. Cause I mean, and I mean, I think into your work in, in general, you know, for any of our listeners who are unfamiliar, I mean, you have really, I think you've really put a lens on this other war of, of, what we know as race in America and how that manifests and particularly anti-blackness in America. Yes. And this book, <laughs> which is, I mean, you know, there's a lot to, there's a lot to unpack here because you really take us, and I'm, I'm amazed that you managed to do this in like 170 pages. Like, you know. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you like, you know, you, you take us on this really intense trip through history and how the Second Amendment 
manifested and really make such a, a, a compelling argument that it was manifested and, and really manifested on anti-Blackness. And that what we think of when we think of this whole war on guns, this whole discussion of gun control, all of that kind of stuff, that this is a conversation in which we continue to be marginalized, that we, we've never been part of this thing. Uh, so how did this how did this project come up for you? Um, so it began actually with the killing of Philando Castile, who was the black man in Minnesota that the police had pulled over and Philando Castile following NRA guidelines, you know, alerts the, the officer that I've got a license to carry weapon with me as the officer is asking him for his ID. This is so that the officer doesn't get all freaky deaky when he sees the gun when he's reaching for his ID. Instead, the officer begins shooting almost immediately. And so you have a black man who is killed simply for possessing a license to carry gun. And the NRA goes virtually silent. And this is the same NRA that just went ballistic at Ruby Ridge and at Waco. So ballistic that they were calling federal law enforcement jackbooted government thugs. And, and so ballistic that it caused George Herbert Walker Bush to cancel his membership in the NRA. And they go silent when a black man is killed simply for having a gun. And it had journalists asking, well, don't black people have Second Amendment rights? And I went, ooh, that is a great question. And that's, as a historian, that's what sent me on this hunt all the way back to the 17th century. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's interesting. This book um, hit closer to home for me than I would have thought. You know, as somebody, you know, you you say very plainly that this is neither a pro-gun nor an anti-gun argument that you're making. This is really just kind of tracing the history of the Second Amendment and and how it has always excluded Black people in particular. So I'm I'm from Minneapolis. I'm, I'm from the Twin Cities, okay. <laughs> and uh, and you know, and I live in Chicago. So you know, the the whole. You kind of open and close this this book with two things that literally hit close to home for me in terms of how that particular argument has led to this deep disenfranchisement. You know, the Kyle Rittenhouse argument that you make towards the end of the book for me was stunning, you know, watching that unfold. I don't live that far from <laughs> where, where all that happened. And um, this idea that you could pass an actual guilty white person in the street, a white man, and I can't, I can't call him a man, he's a child, but, you know, who had crossed state lines with a gun to go uh, do what he did. Yes. And yet, you know, someone like John Crawford um, mm. can't walk through a store where guns are being sold. Right. You know. Right. And, and that's that disparity that I really wanted to bring out, that in saying that we have these arguments about, is this a well-regulated militia or is this an individual right to bear arms? Or, mm -hmm. you know, or we also look at the right to self-defense that emanates out of the Second Amendment. And as I trace this over time, what I saw was that it didn't matter what the legal status of Black folks were, enslaved, free Black, denizen, which is that in-between land between being a citizen and enslaved, emancipated freed people, 
uh, Jim Crow Black or post-civil rights African-American. The legal status did not change how the Second Amendment did not apply to them in the ways that we understand it, but instead how it was designed to eviscerate Black people's rights. It was predicated on anti-Blackness. And so when it comes to the right to bear arms, for Black people, that is a really highly uh, problematic component because Blackness is already the default threat in American society. So Black people with guns creates an exponential fear in the, in the white community. Black people without guns are a threat. We think about Jonathan Farrell, who was the, the Black man in North Carolina who was in a car accident and he went to get help. And he knocked on a white woman's door and she was afraid. And so she called the cops. He sees the police coming. He thinks they're there to help him. He He's going, oh, I'm so glad you guys are here. And they shoot him down. And what they said was, we were afraid. He was, you know, we saw this guy coming at us. We were fearful. And so that that right to bear arms or the right not to have arms, uh, it it doesn't matter for black folks as we don't have the right to self-defense. We keep seeing that over and over and over. And, and so that's what I'm tracking, the role of anti-blackness over time and the ways that it makes black life so precarious in the United States. Well, yeah, and you do that with some lesser known examples, but also some of like, I think the biggest media stories of the last decade, you know, Trayvon Martin, that, you know, when you're talking about self-defense, I mean, that, <laughs> hmm. <laughs> again, there's so much to unpack there. And I, and I do think that you looked at it in a, in a kind of, I think a really intricate way. I don't think I realized that the whole stand your ground argument was not, came kind of after the fact, if, if you will, like it wasn't, like it was just something that got drummed up by defense attorneys. It wasn't the original argument. Yes. So, so yeah, you, you had the police, the Sanford police, when they hit the scene, they immediately were in stand your ground territory. So they didn't do a full investigation. They basically took George Zimmerman at his word. And, and when he said, I was fearful, I was defending myself. And that's where they basically stopped. It took activism to, in fact, bring Trayvon Martin's case to the fore. Um, and then Zimmerman's attorney did not use stand your ground, uh, but did use like self-defense. And then the judge's instructions to the jury, though, were framed on stand your ground basis. So and it was so they kind of handed them that argument like yeah, that was. Yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. And so and when you think about the thugification of yes. Trayvon, it was this thing. This was this big, scary, black, grilled up, hoodie wearing, drug toting thug who was who was pounding on this poor, defenseless man. And 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 that narrative is that narrative of anti-blackness. So it just flips the script something fierce because you have a teenager who is unarmed. It just goes to the convenience store to get Skittles and iced tea for the NBA All-Star game, right? And, and you get George Zimmerman, a grown man who sees Trayvon and is like, ah, 
there's something wrong with this guy. There, you know, he must be on drugs or something. These kind, they always get away. And he takes his loaded nine millimeter and stalks this child through the neighborhood. And in that scenario, when you've got a grown man with a loaded weapon stalking a child, this should be slam dunk easy. Instead, what we get is big black scary guy uh, who's attacking this poor defenseless man and all that stands between him and and an eternal life is this nine millimeter. He was fighting for his life. He enge- he made that engagement. Yeah. But that doesn't come through in the Trayvon Martin case. Anti-blackness really was driving this Trayvon Martin case, the way that it was has been driving the Second Amendment. And when I say anti-blackness, I mean that narrative in American society that defines black people as dangerous, as threats to whites, as 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 criminals, inherently fundamentally criminal, as a group of people who have to be subjugated, um, who have to be forcefully subjugated to know how to stay in their place. If you let them out, oh my gosh, society is ruined. It is devastated. And and that narrative keeps coursing through. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. You know, obviously you've written more more books than these two, but... um, for me, this dovetailed really well with white rage. Um, yes. Do you see it as, I don't, I don't want to say a sequel, but <laughs> did you see it that way when you were, when you were writing it? <laughs> because it, it felt very much to me like, you know, kind of the next chapter of that, of the argument you were making there. Like, you know. White rage was really foundational in the ways that I looked at how Black people striving and aspiring to their full humanity created mm-hmm. this massive policy backlash to undermine and undercut that. The next book after that was One Person, No Vote, that dealt with the massive voter suppression that Black folks have had raining down on them because of their demands to exercise their right to vote, to exercise their right to citizenship. Mm-hmm. And which is where we are right now. We, that's exactly where we are, right? <laughs> right, 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 right. As we speak, as we yes. speak, <laughs> woo! And <laughs> and 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 so this one is another examination of what I call the fractured citizenship of Black people, because that is what I'm trying to figure out as a scholar. Um, mm-hmm. Is how 
Black folks do what they're supposed to do. They work hard. They, they aspire. They fight for this country. They, they labor for this country. They love their families. They, they're God-fearing folk. I mean, you know, all of these kinds of things. And the response is this fractured citizenship where the right to vote is not the right to vote, where the the love of good schools for our children becomes consistently decimated, where the quest for being paid for our labor is in fact um, uh, is virtually anathema. Um, mm-hmm. And I mean, and this is one of the things that I laid out in Elaine, Arkansas, in the second, where you have black folks who were sharecroppers who had labored long and hard and did not get paid. Imagine working for an entire year in 1919 after the war to make the world safe for democracy. You you labored long and hard and you did not get paid. You had nothing to show for that labor. And so they began to do what folks do. They began to organize a labor union so that they could have the clout to get paid for their work. And they said, you know, if white folks find out, they will kill us. And so they set up sentries outside the church where they were meeting to organize for this labor union. And white folks had found out and they sent a scouting party up there. And the scouting party's orders were to break up the meeting and shoot up the meeting. And and so they were spotted. The sentry spotted them. There was an exchange of gunfire. A white man was killed. Another white man was wounded. Word got back to the, the town officials that there was a black insurgency, that they're trying to kill all of the white people. And so the mob descends on that black community. And as black folks are defending themselves, two more white people get killed. So then they send in the U.S. Army with machine guns with machine guns that have been used in the war in France to mow down hundreds of black people simply because they wanted to get paid for their labor. I mean, these are the stories that we must tell. These are the stories that we must lay out there so we can understand how we got here, why now looks like now. Yeah. And, you know, it's, and, Obviously, we know 1919, I mean, I mean, Red Summer, that, that this, this need to control blackness, this need to, as you say, keep us in our place is, is the recurrent theme here. It's the recurrent theme through all of this. And I guess, you know, that kind of makes me, I mean, obviously, you know, you are a historian and, you know, an incredibly good one. And I guess I wonder, like, do you see a way forward here by, by us telling these stories. Do you see, I mean, you know, cause sometimes it does, I mean, I'll say this as a journalist, sometimes it feels like we're screaming into the void of like, but don't you see the facts that are right in front of your eyes? Like, you know? <laughs> Woo! Uh, like the big lie. Um, yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and, and as a historian, as a scholar, I really believe that when we have evidence-based, fact-based knowledge out there, and we keep 
pounding on that evidence-based, fact-based knowledge, it begins to make a dent. And and just like with white rage, then you get this massive pushback, which is where we are now. So you think about it, the prominence of the 1619 Project led to this massive, and then the, the massive protest that happened in the wake of the killing of George Floyd and of Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor, that the response had been, okay, then, whoo, I can't believe this kind of racism here. Maybe there's a, this is a nation where we need to do some real deep introspection. Maybe we need to do some real thinking and think about our curriculum. Maybe we need to, to have some social justice courses in our curriculum. Maybe we need to rethink what our history curriculum looks like so that we engage the array of people and cultures that are here instead of having this very flattened narrative what I call the Rick Santorum narrative. America was just an empty space. And then Europeans came and these white men built this nation all by themselves. So when you have that pushback on that Rick Santorum narrative, what we're dealing with now is this massive outcry by using critical race theory. Right. Uh, saying you can't teach it in, in, in K through 12. Guess what? They don't. We weren't. Right. <laughs> Right. Uh, you know, this law school theory. Uh, and by the way, it's still an elective. You can opt out. <laughs> right. Right. I mean, it is just but what it does, it is like law and order. It is like saying socialized medicine or they're bringing socialism to the United States. It is a, a buzzword that is used to strike fear in the hearts of whites and saying, this is what they're trying to do to your children. You must protect your children. And it is part of the ways of then creating a narrative where you get a Bill O'Reilly talking about that the enslaved people were were clothed well. They, they had clothes. They had good food. They had decent housing. They were treated well. That benevolent slavery narrative had been dominant, dominant in the teaching. And, and so you get this sense of, I remember growing up with that narrative and I was like, why didn't the enslaved fight back? Well, it was when I got to college, I learned they did. They did. But you think about through K through 12, if you think that people didn't fight back from that subjugation, it really does a, a, a way of, of, of shaping your perspective about why the world looks the way that it looks, why your neighborhood looks the way that it looks, why you are seeing the kind of poverty that you're seeing, or why you're seeing the inequities that you're seeing. If you don't understand the history, the the grassroots of how it got to be that way, then your analysis becomes skewed. And then the policies that you support become skewed. And so the work that we're doing is to create the a factual evidence-based history that really helps reframe the ways that we talk about what we're dealing with here in the United States. Well, and so much of it is always about kind of dehumanizing Blackness, flattening Blackness. I mean, you're, you are not the only 
writer I've spoken to even this week where we where we talk about this whole narrative that's been pushed about slavery. Um, I, I just spoke to to Clint Smith, who you know, yes. right? Who yes. did how the yes. right? Who did how the word was passed? Yes. I just spoke yes. to him, yes. and and you know had similar insights to your own. And and you know he brought up the point. He's like, you know, those are things I didn't like. Those are ways I I personally didn't even question those things until I was older because of the way that we're taught about race in America and thinking about. You know, and, and this brings us back to the question of self-defense as well, that these people, you know, we forget that enslaved people had families, you know, and the risks that they would take to fight back, the risks that they would take to run away, like yes. that all of that came at not just the risk of their own peril, but the peril of their families. And this flattening of what Black people experience, this idea that somehow we we have a higher threshold for pain and less intellect or this or that or the third leads to this same argument that I think you're making. So, you know, for me, these two books, reading them at the same time, I did. And it was kind of um, amazing to have them in tandem with each other. But, um, you know, this idea of self-defense, that we are supposed to continue to be terrorized by this country. Yes. yes um, without defending ourselves. And I'm, I'm not a gun person, but, you know, that the idea being that we're just supposed to Take it. Take it. And, and, and the, that right to self-defense is so, again, fractured. So that, like I said, in Elaine, Arkansas, when they were defending themselves, the response was to call in the U.S. Army with machine guns. Um, the kind of asymmetrical power. Um, in 1841, when whites were storming the black community in Cincinnati, and getting ready to just level it. And black folks shot back. The white mob was stunned that black people had the temerity to fight back. And when they came again, black folks shot again. The white mob went back again going, what? So then they came with a cannon. White folks brought a cannon. Now, when you bring a cannon to a gunfight, <laughs> um, um, and then the police intervened. But the way that the police intervened was to disarm black people and, and thinking that if black folks don't have guns, then that would calm down the rage of the whites who were there in that mob. And that would make it all go away. Instead, whites looked up and said, Ooh, now they can't shoot back at all. Uh, let's go for it. And, and, and this is the, the conundrum that black folks are in. And so what I was also laying out in this book is this conundrum that when we are armed, when black folks are armed, we are a threat. We are a heightened threat. When we are unarmed, we are already seen as dangerous, as a criminal element that has to be subjugated. But now we're vulnerable um, because our black skin is what makes it the threat in this anti-black society. And so armed, we're, we're a threat. Unarmed, we're a threat and vulnerable. That's the, the Gordian knot that we are tied in right now. And it does damage to our policies as well. So I think about all of the mass shootings that we have seen and, and how we haven't had any kind of reasonable common sense response to that. You know, an AR-15, really? Um, and I started thinking, why? Why at Sandy Hook? 
when all of those babies were gunned down. Why? And it hit me. Because you would think that would be the tipping point. Like for me, that was the tipping point. Right. Like, <laughs> right. That should have that should have been it. But mm-hmm. it wasn't. And right. and all of Obama's tears could not make it so. And it was because of the depth of the anti-blackness in this society. Think about how many times you hear, we will be left defenseless if they take our guns. I think of Jonathan Metzl's book, Dying for Whiteness, where he looks at, at whites in Missouri who have suffered gun violence in their families. And so in talking with them about gun safety laws, they're like, oh, no, oh, no, you're not going to take our guns because then we're going to be left defenseless against all those people coming in from St. Louis who are going to try to take our stuff. So this fear of black people is is the, the thing. We will be left defenseless if, if you take our guns. Think about times you hear take our guns mm-hmm. um, as, as the. And you're right, because rarely does the follow up question get asked defenseless against who? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Who are you so, so afraid of? <laughs> who are you so afraid of? Um, and why are you so afraid of them? <laughs> boom. Boom. Um, and, and to me, that is one of the key drivers in this. We will be left defenseless. And it reminds me of George Mason in 17, uh, 17, 1788 in Virginia at the ratification convention, the constitutional ratification convention in Virginia, when they were pushing against James Madison because he had put control of the militia in the federal constitution under the federal control. And George Mason was arguing, we will be left defenseless. We cannot count on the feds bringing in the militia when the slaves uh, rise up. We, we will be vulnerable. That language is what I'm still hearing. We will be vulnerable to black folks rising up, demanding their freedom. We must have our guns. We must have our guns. So, you know, and I, I'm, I'm glad that you brought that, <laughs> that up, the gun control argument, because it, it, it was interesting also to be reading this book in a, in a moment when I'm, you know, reading articles that say that 2020 was one of the deadliest years for gun violence in many decades and that we are on track to do worse now in 2021. Halfway through 2021, we've already seen over 8,000 people be killed by gun violence. How do you feel that your work here intersects with that discussion, that ongoing discussion. I mean, you know, again, I live in Chicago. I live on the south side of Chicago. So, you know, this is not a foreign argument to me. It's not a non-concern. It's, and it's, of course, concerning that so much of that gets associated with people who look like me. You know what I mean? Yes. Um, so I, I had a previous interview where a caller said, well, of course we ought to be afraid of black people. Look at what's happening in Chicago, right? It's always, look at, what, <laughs> look at what's happening. Always. It's always that. Yes. Right? So <laughs> Chicago becomes the, the. It's its own dog whistle now. <laughs> right. It's its own yes. proxy for, yes. for, for the black pathology of, yes. of black on black crime. And one of the things that I responded with is that, yes, over 80% of black people are killed by black people. Over 80% of white people are killed by white people, but we don't, we don't talk about white on white crime because what is fueling this is the need to pathologize black people. And what I see in terms of this argument is that 
more guns doesn't make us safe. Uh, fewer guns may not make us safe. We need to reconceptualize what safety and security really looks like in this society. That, And there's some common sense things we have to be able to wrestle with. That civilians do not need military-grade weaponry. <laughs> uh, I mean, this is in the land of people, this ain't hard. Um, mm-hmm. and, and the fact that we can't get there I really believe is because of the the fear of being left defenseless against this black horde, this black threat, this black danger that that threatens to overwhelm white society. And and so I see my intervention in terms of really thinking through how what the second amendment was designed to do that we it, we remove the second amendment from its hallowed ground this venerable ground we treat it like we treat the three fists clause as an entity that was crafted in terms to destroy black humanity in, mm-hmm. in order but that we're still living under we i mean we really are you know Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, and, and that, and by, by removing it from its venerated ground, it allows us to have a very different kind of conversation about what safety and security looks like, the role of anti-blackness in American society and the damage that it has done. Agreed. I mean, I, yeah, I can't, I can't disagree with that. Is there, um, I mean, I know that you come at this from obviously a scholarly perspective, but you know, you're obviously very passionate about your work, which I love. But, um, is there an emotional cost to kind of these, these excavations of, and doing just kind of this kind of digging the thing? I mean, cause it, it does feel even reading it, it feels relentless, like this, this onslaught of information and feeling that no matter how much information you present, there's somebody who's going to, who's going to reject it, you know, a huge amount of somebody's and policies that reject it. What's that emotional cost for you? When I was working on this book, um, the pandemic was raging. Black folks are getting slaughtered. And, and so seeing the things that I'm writing about in the past happening in the current day, that kind of, uh, you know, it's apocryphal where Mark Twain said, history may not repeat itself, but it show do rhyme. <laughs> I felt like living in the rhythms and it was maddening, saddening, um, enraging, frustrating. And, and where I, I, I pulled on for hope was seeing how black folks always fought, always fought for their humanity in the midst of slavery, fought for their humanity in the midst of Jim Crow, fought for their humanity in the post-civil rights era, fought for their humanity. So that, that strength of fighting is where my oasis became, um, knowing that we recognize our humanity. We recognize our worth. And we recognize the importance of fighting for our worth. That was that was cool. <laughs> that was cool. <laughs> well, um, thank you for sharing that with me. And thank you for sharing this book, The Second, Race and Guns in a Fatally Unequal America. Carol Anderson, thank you so much for joining us uh-huh. this week and for sharing your passion for this topic. I, I really hope people read this book and and use this book thoughtfully. 
Yes. Yes. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This was a wonderful conversation. <laughs> it, I, it really was. I enjoyed it immensely. <laughs> CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. The Root Presents It's Lit is produced by myself, Maisha Kai, and Michaela Heck. Our sound engineer is Ryan Allen. Our theme song was penned by yours truly and producer Scott Jacoby. If you like the show and want to help us out, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. It really, really helps us out, and we appreciate your feedback so much. If you have any thoughts or feedback, you can find me on Twitter at Maisha. That's M-A-I-Y-S-H-A and at Maisha Kai on Instagram. Before we go, we always like to talk a little bit about what we're currently reading. What I'm currently reading is Fade to Grey, Androgyny Style and Art in 80s Dance Music by Adrian Loving. This is a book that you may hear me reading week over week because it's such a dense but amazing anthology about one of my favorite eras and the era of my childhood, the 80s. And really talking about these incredible intersections of gender and music and location. Um, and I, I just, I'm so impressed with this work and the uh, brilliant thinkers he got together to to do this. It's, it's really a tour de force and it's really beautiful to look at as well. So I highly recommend you guys getting this uh, on your coffee tables. <laughs> That's Faye to Grit, y'all. Check it out. But for now, that's it for me. Thanks so much for listening and we will see you next week. In the meantime, keep it lit. <laughs>